together in prayer, with you together in God's word. If you have a Bible, then I would encourage you to open up to the first page, or maybe the first page, maybe after the table of contents, the first page, Genesis chapter 1 is where we will be this morning together. If you don't have a Bible, then when you came in on the Next Steps table, there should have been a little QR code that you could scan that would get the Bible on your phone. Um, it's, uh, that gives you an opportunity to have a Bible on you and to know where we'll be at and to follow along in the text. Uh, I just, it's so nice. I was in Arizona earlier this week. It's nice to be back in Southern California. And I, I, I know that this is going to sound uh, kind of crazy, but do you guys, there are people in our city that don't know Jesus. You ever think about that? Like, there are people who don't know Jesus. And I just kind of can't believe that that's, that I, I just, uh, I, I hope that because of our church and because of you and because of our relationships and because of the way we live our lives, that people would come to know Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's, that's what we want. That's what we're about as a church. And so I do hope that God would shape us and form us and send us out uh, to people who just don't know the love of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, we are in a series that we're calling Back to the Garden. The reason for that is because we know that if you get the garden right, if you get Genesis 1, 2, 3, or just Genesis, you get Genesis right, there's a real good chance you're going to get the rest of the Bible and the rest of reality right. But if you get Genesis wrong, you're probably going to get everything wrong. And so we found ourselves uh, thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live in the world? What does it mean to be a Christian in Los Angeles? And to recognize that in a host of competing worldviews, it's important for us to go back to the garden. When Jesus is asked questions about, about divorce and marriage, when he's asked about taxes, he's asked about all kinds of things, Jesus likes to go back to the garden and reminding us, haven't you read what God did in the garden? In the New Testament with Paul, when Paul's asked questions about, uh, about different issues, or Peter the same, they have a tendency of saying, well, wait, what about the garden? Let's go back to the garden. And so we find ourselves as a church going back to the garden, walking through Genesis. We're going to, as a church, do the first four chapters of Genesis over the course of ten weeks. And so that's just how much text we will cover. We started last week, we did two verses, Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2, and we talked about God. And we talked about God as eternal, God as creator, God as personal. We talked about how the world may have had a big bang and it needed a big banger. Uh, we <laughs> talked about how God brings everything into existence. We talked about how God is timeless and faithless and immaterial and all-powerful and that God is personal, and that God knows you. And uh, last week was just really marveling at the goodness of God. Getting God right is so important. And as we continue in Genesis today, we will go through verses 3 through 31, which is a big chunk of text, walking through the work days of the beginning of creation. So God creates, and that takes, you know, day one, day two, day three, all the way to the first six days. That's what we will do today. And then just to give you a preview of where we're heading, heading next week, today I will cover uh, Genesis day one all the way through day six. Next week we will look at day six specifically in more depth. And the week after that we will still look at day six. So we're going to be a lot in day six in this, only because that is where we get um, humanity from. That's where all kinds of questions about who we are and what we're about, and that's where we'll answer that. So we'll do that, and then we'll move on to Genesis, uh, to day seven, and we'll continue uh, forward. So that's where we're going today and where we have been and why we're doing what we're doing, and I'm excited to do that with you. Um, 
It's amazing the amount of complexity that human beings are able to create. We are able to create things and machines that are able to create things that we can't see with our own human eyes. The world is complex, and human beings have this capacity for creating great complexities. As we look around our world, we also discover great complexities. The universe is complex, the planets are complex, our nature is complex, our brains may be the most complex organism on the face of the earth. We live in a complex world, and that complexity doesn't just come into existence on its own. If you found yourself later today walking along Santa Monica Beach and you saw in the sand an iPhone that was on, I doubt that you would look at that iPhone and come to the conclusion that over millions of years, through an accidental chance byproduct, that phone came into existence. I think it's probably more likely that you would pick up that iPhone and you would conclude a few things. One, it was probably designed by uh, someone somewhere, probably made by Apple, and probably belongs to someone who had at least been to the beach recently. <laughs> the complexity of the universe points away from itself to someone who has made the universe. The creation is designed and points to a designer. We see this everywhere that we look. Even those uh, kind of atheistic, hard-lined scientists who push against the existence of God cannot deny what some philosophers and scientists refer to as the fine-tuning of the universe. The universe is made up of a collection of constants, and if any of those constants were just off by a little bit, there wouldn't be any life in our entire universe. One of those constants, just one of them, is the gravitational a constant, which is so precisely fine-tuned that to have that gravitational constant be what it is, is the odds of having it look the way it looks in order for us to have life are the same odds as you taking a regular die, or dice, I think it's die, in the singular of dice is die, a regular die, and rolling that die, and rolling a six, and then rolling it again, and rolling a six, and then rolling a six 80 times in a row without missing a beat. Now, some of you, before you get the idea of, like, I can do that, um, uh, on average, it will take the average person to get 80 dice, 80 sixes in a row um, without missing a beat. It would take you trillions upon trillions of years, which is, which is more time than we know the universe has existed. The universe is fine-tuned. It's designed. And that is because we're not just looking at space and place. We are looking instead at creation. God is the creator. Just this last week, the big tech company Apple, who I referenced earlier, put out a, an ad where they, uh, they're talking about Mother Nature. And if you've seen this ad, it's sort of interesting. You might want to watch it later. It's fascinating because you have the executives of Apple, and then you've got this. Um, they're all sort of terrified of who's going to show up. And, and the person who walks into the room is Mother Nature herself. And Mother Nature is an angry God. And they're all trying to appease her. We've done everything we can to make sure that everything is the way. And she's sort of looking at them judgmentally. And I thought, this is interesting. Even Apple wants God to exist and wants God to be kind of angry. <laughs> Mother Nature doesn't exist, though. She's not in charge. God is. Because the world that we're looking at is not just a byproduct of random chance, but rather it is created by the creator. Some people will ask regularly, where is there evidence of God? It's remarkable that that question emerges because if 
you have eyes to see, I think you'll discover that a better question might be, where isn't there evidence of God's hand? Communities, the sunset, people, the animals, the plants. The fact that you exist, life itself, designed and created by God. So this morning, we're going to look at Creation. We're going to look at the God who created, but mostly the creation. And like I said, we will walk through the seven work days, and then, uh, sorry, we'll see six work days, and then uh, we will, uh, I'll unpack them as we go. And just so how we'll do things this morning is after we walk through these six work days, I'll just have sort of three implications that I think are relevant to us, worth stirring on because of this text. So if you've got a Bible, we'll jump right in to Genesis chapter one, and we'll pick up where we left off in verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. We left off last week with God, Spirit of God hovering over the tohu vabohu, right? The formless and empty, raw, primeval material that God creates before he brings things into existence. And here we have the first day God said, let there be light. If you're reading Genesis, you'll discover as we walk through each day that there's a pattern, a rhythm that begins to sort of emerge. It starts with this announcement, and God said. And then there is the command, what God says. In this case, let there be light. And then there's the fulfillment. The light is created, and the text will say, it was so, or there was light. Then God will look upon what he has made, and God will declare it good. And then he'll do something, he'll add to it, or he'll name it. There's a sort of divine uh, adjustment to it via naming or uh, by addition. And then finally, each day will end with a numbering. It was evening or morning on the tenth day. This rhythm or pattern is all throughout the book of Genesis, especially in this here's the beginning in this creation pattern. And that's because Genesis is a kind of narrative history that's told stylistically to God's people. If you remember last week, Genesis was written by Moses. He's speaking to God's people who have just been delivered from Egypt and are now in the wilderness together. And he's telling the story of how the world came to be. This is stylized history. It's true, but it's told in a narrative form. Sometimes people will say Genesis 1 isn't a science textbook. And that's true. It's not a science te textbook. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But it's also not fantasy, and it's also not myth the way that the ancients would have thought about it. You'll find in this Genesis creation account no mention of orcs or wizards or dragons. Um, there were lots of ancient creation stories that existed in the ancient Near East, but they all involved wars and battles between the gods. Instead, what we find here in Genesis is narrative, the way that narrative is told in history. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And you'll notice that I haven't used the word poetry, and that's on purpose, because Hebrew poetry is different. It has a kind of parallelism that we do not find here. So this isn't really Hebrew poetry, and it's not an ancient myth. Uh, it is instead history told in a stylized way. 
It's true. It's true. Now, it could have been science. This is a very modern sort of take on things, right? Like, why doesn't it say, in the beginning there were quarks, and then gravitational constants and the law of entropy, as if ancient Near Eastern Jewish people who had just emerged out of Egypt had those questions on their mind. <laughs> That's not what Moses is trying to do. Moses is trying to answer the question divinely given to him by God about how did we get here? And Moses says again and again, God. God is how we got here. Jesus will say later, God. God is why we are here. And here we discover right in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 on day 1 that God speaks. And when God speaks, things that don't exist come into existence. It's a miracle that God speaks and then brings life into existence here in day one. He speaks and things just transform. I love that in the New Testament, Paul will argue the same miracle of God that takes place on day one in Genesis, at the genesis of everything, is the same kind of miracle that takes place in the life of every Christian. He says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At some point, if you are a Christian, and you may or may not be aware of this moment, at some point, God took your dead heart and made it alive. At some point, God took your darkness and turned it into light. At some point, he took you from death and he made you alive. The same God who spoke the universe into existence transforms you and still transforms people today. The God who worked miracles is still working miracles in the world. It happens in Genesis chapter 1, and it happened in the genesis of your relationship with God. So God says, let there be light. And then you'll look down at verse 4 and notice that God saw the light was good. And the word for good here is the word tov. And the word tov means beautiful. It certainly does mean good, but it doesn't mean good the way we talk about good. If I say, what kind of car do you have? And you say, I've got a good car. Or how was your breakfast? You say, I had a good breakfast. You mostly mean adequate. That's mostly what we mean when we, how was your day? It was a good day. Nobody means good as anything really more than adequate today. That's how we use the word. But that's not how the word tov, which means good in Hebrew, are, like, reveals itself. Right? Instead, the word tov means uh, the way it's supposed to be. It means beautiful, wonderful. It's tov. God, God brings light into the world and then says, it's tov. It's just the way I want it to be. And then God takes this light and he separates it. He'll do this a few times. You'll see this theme of separation throughout the text. He separates the light into both light and dark. He'll do this again with the sky and with the earth. He'll do this with the sea and he'll do this with the land. He'll do this with man and he'll do this with woman. Here in Genesis, we discover that there are these holy distinctions that exist before everything goes wrong just a couple of chapters later. 
And then in verse 5, what does God do? After he says that it was good, after he separated things, in verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. God names these things. In the ancient world, naming things is very important, and you'll discover if you follow up in our Genesis series that naming will show itself again as important. Because it is a privilege that man will be given. Then the day is numbered. This is the first day. Now, when you hit the word day in Genesis, if you read almost any book about Genesis, you get your first real controversy. What does the word day mean? It's the Hebrew word for yom. And it means, in the Bible, it means a 24-hour day. Now, if you read kind of across history, you'll discover that there are people out there who want this word day to sort of symbolize billions of years. Because they have this view of the world and the earth that is billions and billions and billions of years old. Other people will want to say, no, 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 it may appear that way, but the word yom just means the word day, and it's a 24-hour day, and so you'll see differing opinions on, on how old the universe or the earth is. I just want to be very clear. You can be a member of our church and disagree on this. We can take each other out to coffee. We can debate it. We can tease one another in love. But I want you to know that this text isn't answering that question. Instead, the question it's asking is, how did this all come about? And the answer is God. I don't care where you stand on those kinds of issues. Let me be very clear about this issue. Every single Christian is a creationist. To be a Christian is to believe that the world was created. That's central. It's important. At the end of day one, you have light and you have dark. And then we get to day two. Pick up with me in verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Remember that in day one, God took light, and he separated it into light and dark. Here we have day two, and what does God do in day two? Once again, another separation. He takes the expanse, which is another word for sky, um, and he, he takes it, and he, he takes the waters from, remember there's that the waters, the, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 2, God takes this water after day and night. He takes the water and he separates it to the waters above in the sky and the waters below. Now, some of you are like, what is water in the sky? If that confuses you, you may look up there this afternoon and discover rain. <laughs> Clouds are water in the sky. God, God develops the sort of water in the sky. There's a, another separation that happens. And, and the word sky is a good word, but instead God chooses to name that the heavens. Heavens is a good word. It's a better word than sky. <laughs> sky seems to imply that it's just kind of space. Heavens implies that it's the place where God is. God takes the water above and the water below. And then pick up with me on the third day, verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. 
God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees, bearing fruit, in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. God takes this water below, after he's separated the water above and the water below, and he takes the water below and separates it into land and into sea. God is beginning to now create living things into this earth. He takes this land, and he begins to fill it with plants. He creates the plants. He creates the living things. The plants are designed by God. Now, I know that I'm probably not preaching in a context where people are likely to worship plants. Well, I don't think people in L.A. do that. I'm sure there are some. We're a big enough city that that might be a reality. But at the time that this was written, at the time Moses is teaching this, you have to understand there was a tendency for people to begin to worship the things that were made rather than the one who made them. And Moses wants you and I to know that the reason that plants exist is not because they are gods in and of themselves worthy of worship, but rather the life that they have within them has been given to them by the God who made them. And apparently God loves making plants. There are 380,000 plant species in the world. And the Lord made the Venus flytrap. <laughs> Wild, right? Venus flytrap. What a weird plant. But God made that. All the plants God made. And Moses wants you and I to know we don't worship the stuff that's been made. Rather, we worship the one who's made it. We don't worship the universe. We don't worship crystals. We don't worship the stars. We worship none of those things. The universe comes to life because the God who is life brings them to life by his word. And then he has them reproduce according to their kind. That's by design. You've never seen an apple grow from an orange tree. You've never seen a dog give birth to a cat. Now maybe if you were in charge, that's how you would have made it. But you're not, and so it isn't. God is the designer, intentional in his design. And we discover at the end of day three, we've got light, we've got dark, we've got sky, we've got earth, we've got sea, we've got land, we've got all these things, and God's beginning to fill them. Verse 14, follow along with me. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be light in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was tov, that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Day four, the sun and the moon are set into place. And you'll notice in the text that the words sun and moon are not there. That's partially, probably, because Egypt had worshipped 
the sun and the moon. And so Moses just wants you to know that this is the sun and the moon and that they are not gods in and of themselves, but rather Moses is sort of flexing on the people by reminding them that what they think is God is not God and has been created by God who is. Your gods are no gods at all, Moses might say to them. Now, there's some debate about when the sun and the moon were made. Makes for, makes for a fun conversation in your community groups, maybe. But here on day four, what we can say is that the sun and the moon are set into place. The heavens are filled. Why? Well, the text says it's for days and for years and for signs and for seasons. There's a big argument over whether or not days can exist before this day in the Bible, and I see no reason why that can't happen. You'll notice that I have not given my opinion on how old things are. I probably won't do that. But I will give you this kind of caveat as you're thinking through the things like science and faith, which I think are certainly not at odds in any way, shape, or form. But I might tell you this as a small piece of advice. Any man or woman who marries themselves to the thinking of their age often will find themselves widowed in the next age. Science is a great gift. There's no reason why when God was separating things, they couldn't exist already. And so the sun and the moon are put into place. The heavens are now filled. God made what other people worship as gods. Moses wants you to know, no, 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 no. God made them. Pick up with me in verse 20 as we head towards day 5. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. Well, here in day five, we now begin to get animals. The deepest parts of the oceans are filled. There are still animals in the ocean that we have never seen before. I can't believe it boggles my mind that God put animals in the ocean and is like, they're not going to discover these for a long time. They're just for my pleasure. <laughs> Birds in the sky animals in the deep, and it's Tob. And then notice this, in verse 22, for the first time in Genesis, you see that God blesses. Verse 22, that's important, because we'll talk about blessing. We'll pull that thread in the weeks ahead as, uh, uh, weeks ahead as well. A blessing shows up. Blessing is a big deal in Genesis, and it's most often connected with the ability to procreate. Blessing is God's favor upon the animals. Blessing is a way of seeing that what we have and what we're doing and what we're about is ultimately not ourselves but about God. We live in a city that loves to talk about achievement, that loves to talk about success, that loves to talk about accomplishment. Christians love to talk about blessings. Why? Because blessings point away from ourselves 
and to the one who has given us the gift of being able to create whatever it is we end up creating. Brothers and sisters, be grateful for your accomplishments. Don't mishear me here. Be grateful for your accomplishments, but be grateful to God for your accomplishments. And then we come to day six. And as I mentioned at the top, we'll spend a couple of weeks here. So this morning, I'm just going to give a brief overview. Verse 24, follow me through this little bit larger chunk, 24 through 31. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said <coughs> to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning, the sixth day. On day six, God will speak four times, more than he speaks on any other day. And here he will create human beings, not according to their kind, but rather they are made in the image of God. Man is a creature made by a creator, but that man is different than all of the other creatures. Man is not animal. Later on we talk about how man is not angel, but man is not animal. Man is not a slave to their base instincts. Man and cow are not the same. Man is made in the image of God, separate and distinct, not by kind, but by sex, male and female, both made in the image of God. And notice for the first time in Genesis that these creatures, mankind, God doesn't speak about them, but speaks to them. <coughs> and he gives them authority over all of his good creation. And he provides food for them. In the ancient world, most of the gods were angry most of the time. And for some really strange reason, if you read ancient history, many of them are just constantly hungry. <laughs> so you wake up in the morning and you, you, you bring your grain and you till your offering and you bring it to God because the God is 
angry and hungry and grumpy and they're fighting all the time and it's this sort of strange thing in here. Moses wants you to know, I know that many people in your world are likely to believe in this like angry, hungry God, but let me show you the God who rather than demanding food from people, gives food to people. This is the God who provides a feast for his human beings who are made in his image. Gives them a bounty and then look at all of it and doesn't just say that it's tov, but says that it's tov me'od, which means very good. As we wrap up here, looking at this large section of text, which we could spend just literally weeks on just the text I covered, but try to give an overview, let me just pull three implications as we wrap up our time together. Here are these three implications. This text gives you an unshakable foundation, an unfathomable God, and an unparalleled value. Let me begin with that first one, an unshakable foundation. If you get Genesis right, you get so much else right. We are not atheists. Genesis tells us that God is the creator. We are not polytheists. Genesis tells us that God is one. We're not pantheists. God is not the creation. God is distinct from it. We're not humanists because human beings are not gods. We're not materialists who believe that only matter exists and nothing else. No, God brings matter into being. We're not Gnostics. The Gnostics famously taught that spiritual good, material bad. Here in Genesis, we see that God repeatedly calls his material good. Not spiritual good, material bad. It's all good made by God. We're not pagans. We worship God, not the creation that God has made. The basics of how we see the world are all built in here in Genesis. You get this right. All those, those, those uh, worldviews I just named, you live in a Los Angeles where people, they, they're just, they're like a buffet, <laughs> where people don't know which to choose, and they're bouncing from one thing to the next, and they're inconsistent, and they're miserable, and they're very confused. Genesis gives you a foundation to stand on, to say, well, I don't have to know everything, but I know some things. Most importantly, I know We have an unshakable foundation, but we also have an unfathomable God. Think about the grandness of God. God created everything. God created everything and designed it with intention. Think about the way that God provides for his creation. Think about the way that God blesses what he has made. Think about God's care. Think about the vastness and, and how big and wonderful and beautiful. Think about how scientists today say that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. God knows all of that. And in the presence of such great knowledge, God knows you. At one point, Job, in the book of Job, is frustrated with God, and if I'm just honest, I think all of us have been frustrated with God at some point. God brings his frustration and honesty to God. And towards the end of the book of Job, there's this great section, it's long, but I'll give you a section of it, 
God responds to Job. It just says in Job 38, 4, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? <laughs> Tell me if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely Job, you know. Who, who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Or while the morning stars sang together and all the angel, angels shouted for joy, Job, what were you doing then? <laughs> God made it all. God knows it all. God created it all, set it all into motion, understands it all, sees it all, directs it all, owns it all. And then we have the audacity sometimes to ask that God to come into our lives to be our own personal assistant. You ever think of how strange that is? The God who made everything, and we wake up in the morning like, God, you exist to help me do what I want. No, that's ludicrous. You didn't create yourself, so you don't get to create the reason for yourself. You don't belong to yourself, do you? It may be the most countercultural thing you say today, but it is so liberating. You don't have to create yourself. You've been created. You don't have to create meaning for yourself. You can discover the reason you exist. If you get those two pieces in place, you are going to be off to a great start. God is unfathomable. We know about God because he's revealed himself, but we don't know everything about God because God is too vast for us. Lastly, as I close, third and finally, an unparalleled value. As I close, this part is really important to me, so please hear this. The Bible does not begin with Genesis chapter 3. What do I mean when I say that? The Bible does not begin with, you're bad and God is good. Rather, while we do know that the world is messed up, and we'll get there in the weeks ahead, what we discover is that after God makes human beings in his image, he looks upon his creation, including the human beings he's made, and he declares that they are very toad. You are more valuable than you could ever imagine. We do this strange thing in our culture today when someone begins to imitate greatness. We look at them and we say, oh, they're the next version of someone else who is already great. That's the next Beyonce, or that's the next Adele, or that's the next Kobe Bryant, or that's the next Michael Jordan, or that's the next whatever, fill in the blanks of your industry, your field, your specialty. Are you the next blank? And what the Bible teaches is that you're not the next anybody, that you're made specifically by God who finds you more valuable than anything because you bear God's image. One of your biggest problems in the world is you just don't know that God is crazy about you because you bear his image. I was speaking to a group of students in Arizona earlier this week, and I was talking about the most famous painting that's ever been sold, $450 million dollars for a picture of Jesus that we're pretty sure was painted by Da Vinci. $450 million for some paint on canvas. Some of you don't think you're worth 20 bucks, but you're worth way more than that to God. You're worth more than the mountains, more than the seas, more than the birds. God looks upon creation while you're staring at the sunset being like, isn't that beautiful? God's looking at you and thinking the same thing. 
more valuable than you could ever imagine. Now, we don't feel valuable because we're sinful. But you're more valuable than you think. When I was, when my kids were little, we would read them a story called You Are Special. Any of you know You Are Special? Some of you do? The story is about a little wemmick, a little kind of puppet named Punchinello. Punchinello lives in this world where different wemmicks receive stars and dots based on their good or bad behavior or reputation by the other wemmicks. You do good things and people put stars on you and the stars stick to your body. You do bad things and you get all these dots and society orders itself in such a way is that you look around and you're like, oh, black dot person, get away from them, get away from that wemmick. And Punchinello one day sees another wemmick who has no stars and no dots. Punchinello goes to this other Wemmick and goes, how is it possible that you have no stars or dots that stick to you? And she says to Punchinello, oh, I, I go to the woodcarver named Eli. And he's like, what? <laughs> so he goes and visits Eli and discovers that the more time that he spends with Eli, the more that he is able to hear from Eli, who made him, who he is, that the stars and the dots that the other Wemmicks try to put on him don't stick. It's such a simple children's story. You read it to your kids and you're like, oh, that's interesting. You read it as an adult and you're like weeping, going like, oh, I'm covered in stars and dots. Why do they stick to me, right? I, I'm just telling you that story because that's you. You get your identity from how good you are or think you are compared to other people. You feel terrible about yourself because you compare yourself to other people. You're covered in stars and dots. And what God says right here in Genesis 1 is do not let anybody else give you your identity. You get that from me, and I think you are very toad. You are more valuable than you think you are. Now, like I said, we don't feel valuable, not just because people look down on us, but because we sin. Because we're so valuable to God that when we sin, God doesn't say, yeah, bad apple. Instead, God says, ooh, you've run from me. You've sinned. You've done what you shouldn't do. You're now unholy, and I am holy. You've got a problem you can't fix, but you're so valuable to me that I'll fix what you can't fix for you. I'll send Jesus to deal with your sin problem, your death problem your darkness problem so that you might be reconciled to me again. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you are just missing out. <laughs> you don't know God. You don't know the beauty of getting your identity from the one who says you are very toad. Wouldn't it be amazing to live in a world where the stars and the dots didn't stick to you because you knew that no matter what anybody else thought about you, you're made in God's image. So much so that he's willing to make peace with you by giving us his own son. So whoever repents of their sin and turns to Jesus and trusts in him will be made new. That's offered to you and to me and to all of us. It's the greatest news in the world. God is our creator. We don't make ourselves. In and through him and creation, we get an unshakable foundation.
find fathomable darkness, if we find chaos, find parallel light, then it works. <coughs> Father, we've just scratched the surface of this text, and Lord, I do pray that people would be encouraged by its central proclamation, namely that you are the creator, we are the creation, and you love us more than we could ever imagine. God, I don't know why it is that so many of us hate ourselves. We can't look at ourselves in the mirror. Most of us, I think, just think way too lowly of ourselves. We don't see ourselves the way that you see us. Some of us, unfortunately, are filled with another problem, which is we think too highly of ourselves because of our own achievements and accomplishments, failing to recognize all along that those are just blessings from you. Lord, keep us from being the center of our own world. Keep us from being the center of our own lives. Lord, we want you to be the center. For we belong to you, we are made by you, created by you, for you. And we are right with you, not by what we have done, but by what you have done in and through your son Jesus. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried, rose again, and ascended to be with you. All that so that we might be reconciled to you. His body broken, his blood shed, so that we might be forgiven and at peace with you. We live in a world where so many people don't have peace. You offer us peace, a kind of peace that cannot be taken away by any circumstance. Help us to embrace that peace and to rejoice in it. I pray for those who are in this room who don't know you, that they would stop trying to be in control of their own lives, stop trying to create their own meaning and identity and purpose, and they would instead find themselves very posed, made by you in your image. Lord, help us to live in a world that doesn't